You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Let's continue this morning in our series in the book of Hebrews. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer this morning. Uh, I'm going to have to do a bit more explaining of the text today. Um, Hebrews is, is a tough book, and the language can sometimes be hard to figure out. Like, what exactly is going on here? And I feel this burden, as leaders, we all feel this burden, that we really want us as a people to understand what God's Word says. And not when we're preaching, have your eyes glaze over and just be like, whatever, you know. But today with our text, um, it's just going to require a little more explaining, a little more understanding of Old Testament history. And so it's going to be more explaining teaching than sometimes in the past, the way I usually preach. Um, But we are going to have some good application at the end. So let's lean in and, and try to engage our minds this morning. Let me start by saying this. We all know what it's like to be a student of our past, right? We all know what it's like to be a student of our, of our past. Um, mistakes can be our most painful teachers at times, right? But also our best teacher. You look back and you see a huge mess that you made and you say to yourself, man, I, I don't ever want to go that way again. I'm sure we all can relate to that, right? And you don't go that way again. You learn from that past mistake or sin or whatever it is. And this happens as well in societies, in cultures. For example, in our country, I hope that we've learned this deep, profound, painful lesson that if you enslave a group of people based on their skin color, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well for the culture at large. Hopefully that will never happen again, ever. We can't go that way. We learn from that. World War II, Nazi Germany taught so many lessons about the horror of demonizing a group of people. And and fear can motivate us to do really horrible things. A persuasive leader speaking to a people that are hurting and promising deliverance can be a recipe for disaster if that leader knows how to be really persuasive and manipulative and, and, and dominate. And there's a slogan that, that emerged out of the horror of World War II in Nazi Germany, and it's just simply, never again. Never again. Lots of people use that slogan to say, we have to learn from the past. We can't ever, ever let something like this happen again. We have to look back at the horrors of the past, learn from it, be fearful of it, and run away from it. And as we've seen, and we're going to continue in today, the author of Hebrews is asking his audience to do the same thing. The author of Hebrews is asking his readers 2,000 years ago to do the same thing. And we've seen that in chapters 2, I'm sorry, chapters 3 and 4. Here's what he wants them to do. Look back at the horrors of the past. 
learn from it, be fearful of it, and run away from it. Now, I want us just to do a little bit of a review so, so you can see where chapter 4 connects to what we've already looked at in chapter 3. And even chapter 1. So up to this point, what have we learned in three chapters of the book of Hebrews? What are the big themes that we've learned? Well, one of the big themes that we've learned is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything. He's the greatest thing in all the universe. He's the capital C creator. He is God. He is the son of God. Mystery of the Trinity. And as a result, Jesus is seen as far superior to everything in creation. He's better than the best job you could imagine, the best car you could imagine, the best relationship you could imagine. He's better than everything. And it would make sense if Jesus is the creator and by him all things were created, as it says in in Hebrews 1, that the creator would be superior to creation. And as a result, what's the implication? He's worth persevering through trials. He's worth persevering when your faith gets hard. Like, if we had to pick ease in this life and know Jesus versus hardship in this life with Jesus, the author of Hebrews is saying, you take Jesus and hardship every single time. That's what he's trying to persuade them and us of. In chapters 3 and 4 now, is is one big sermon illustration learning the lessons from the Old Testament people of God. Many, many centuries before this original audience. And they didn't do very well when that hardship came. They picked ease and rejection of God as opposed to hardship with God. And he's saying we got to learn from that. We have to learn from that. We can't go that way. So I'm just going to read the text leading up to our text for today and just make a couple comments to to make sure we see how it connects, okay? So look back at chapter 3, starting in verse 6. In verse 6 he says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, meaning, it's a metaphor, we are his people, we are God's people, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You see the conditional cause there? Clause, if. Perseverance is the key. Perseverance is so important. We prove to be his people if we persevere. Can't be like these Old Testament people who were led by the hand of God out of slavery in Egypt and then they turned their backs on him. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart as they have, um, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So this is, he's quoting from Psalm 95. And he's reminding, like we've seen in the last couple of weeks, can't be like these Old Testament people. Okay, we're going to talk a lot about them here in a second. So what should we do? Verse 12 says, here's what we should do. We should take care of each other. Take care of each other. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving, evil heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And since that's, that's a threat, what should we do? Verse 13, exhort one another. Don't let that come to pass. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a terrifying statement, hardening by the deceitfulness of sin. So we've got to take care of each other. We've got to be aware of one another. We have to hear from one another when they say, brother, sister, I think you're in sin right now. I think there's a hardening that's happening to your heart. That is terrifying to me. It should be terrifying to you in light of what's at stake. That's why your city group's a big deal. That's why Sunday morning's a big deal. Our relationships are a big deal in Christian life. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold, there's the if statement again, if indeed we hold our original confidence, confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, if you have ears to hear, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. Gotta keep going. Don't give up. It's not worth it to give up. Don't give up. It's not worth it. He keeps going, verse 16. For, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? I mean, that's a staggering statement. They heard, we're going to talk about this, but I want us to hear it and see it. They heard, they heard God speak, and still they rebelled. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? That's a pregnant statement. They left Egypt. Well, what happened when they left Egypt? Think about that. If you don't know, I'm, we're going to talk about that in a second. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable, these the Old Testament people, many centuries before this original audience of Hebrews, we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. So this is just a big sermon illustration from the Old Testament. They saw the mighty works of God delivering them from Egypt and still turned their backs on him in unbelief. As it says, look at verse 19 of chapter 3. He's saying, don't go that way. Don't go that way. We can't be like them. We have to learn from that. Learn from that. Be fearful of that kind of a hard heart and, and run from it. It's like put yourself in the shoes of, of, the, of the ancient Israelite. You, you stand on the shore of the Red Sea and, and, and the Egyptian army, Pharaoh and his hordes, are bearing down on you to kill you. And you see God use Moses to part the Red Sea and there's walls of water, and you walk through, and that brings salvation to you. Salvation, you're still alive, and judgment on them, God's enemies. And you would think if those people that saw that and walked through those walls of water by faith, that it would, that, that it would we're walking through by faith. It's not going to come crashing down on us. We trust God. We believe God. Here we go. We're walking. This water on, our, on each side is really scary. By faith, we're, we're going to enter in. 
by faith that, God, you're going to hold that water back. If you walked through those, those walls of water by faith and found salvation from slavery, 400 years, by the way, wouldn't it be totally weird to just a few weeks later turn your back on God and say, God, Moses, let's go back to Egypt. It's kind of hard out here in, in the wilderness. Isn't there like a massive disconnect there? After all they experienced? It sounds kind of weird, right, that they would, they would do that. And the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, it's weird. It's horrible. It's tragic. It's terrifying. He's saying to this ancient persecuted church, they're not in slavery to Pharaoh, but they are severely persecuted at this time in history under the rule of the Roman Empire. And he's saying, I know you're under pressure too, just like ancient Israelites, under severe pressure of slavery 400 years in Egypt. But he's saying, don't be like them. You too, recipients of the book of Hebrews, you too have tasted the promises of God by faith. How? When you saw the cross of Jesus, you saw the empty tomb, so that should move you just as much as if you were walking through the Red Sea. That should sustain you just as much. Even though it didn't sustain them, he's saying, let it sustain you. Don't give up belief in God and his promises to save you, to keep you, to provide for you. Keep going. <clears throat> and that, all of that, brings us to chapter 4 and verse 1. And there's just some tricky language here that we got to unpack. But I just want to make sure you have that background and feel the weight of what's going on in the book of Hebrews and what the author's trying to accomplish in their hearts and in our hearts. Look at verse 1. He says to them, in light of verse 19, you have to see it connected to verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then he says, therefore... As an implication of what I just said, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. While the promise of entering his rest still stands. What is he talking about? What's he talking about here? So the author of Hebrews is assuming that, that his readers know a lot about the Old Testament. And some of us here are new to our Bibles, and that's totally okay. So we're going to have to explain, what, what is he talking about here? This rest. And this idea of rest has a long history. And it's connected to this guy named Abraham. And many, many, many centuries before this book was written, before Hebrews was written, um, God comes to this guy kind of out of nowhere named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I've chosen you. Just, I've, I've just placed my sovereign love upon you. Not because of anything good in you. You didn't earn it. And Abraham, I'm going to use you to make a people for myself that are going to be a unique people of God. And it's going to be a great nation. And it's going to be a nation that I'm going to put in my place. I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to give you my presence, and you're going to be my people. 
And I'm going to give you a proactive mission to be a light to the nations, to be a light to the Gentiles. And the generation, and this came to pass. What he promised Abraham came to pass. And Abraham had a ton of kids, and those kids had a ton of kids, and those kids had a ton of kids. And they did become a great people just as God promised. Short version, many years later, they all get enslaved in Egypt, like we've talked about. All of God's people enslaved in Egypt. And then if you're enslaved in Egypt at that time, you might be thinking, well, what about this land that, that God promised Abraham, my great, 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 great grandfather, and we've all been hearing about it. We're enslaved in Egypt. Where's this promised land? Slavery's horrible. It's this weight that I carry around every day. Did God forget his promises? God, doesn't, God never forgets his promises. And he comes to Moses. He raises him up as a leader to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh like we've already talked about. And he says, I'm going to give you that land. And after I rescue you from the hand of Pharaoh, you're going to enter this land of promise, the promised land. Land of promise, the promised land. And and guess what that promised land is? It's an intentional contrast. You had the land of slavery 400 years, and now you're going to be delivered. And in the past, it was hard, backbreaking work. And this land of promise that Moses is going to take you through the the waters of judgment and give you this land, what's it going to be? A land of milk and honey. That's, that's Bible speak for blessing, the opposite of slavery in Egypt. And what does that mean? If you're a slave, you're always tired. Work to the bone. If you're in the land of promise, what is that? Rest. Rest. No longer tired all the time. You're in a land. This is what he promised. It will be fruitful. It will be a land of blessing. It'll be a land of my presence. It'll be a land where the whole world could look and see, man, these are, these are the people of Yahweh. They do things differently. This is beautiful. A people in God's place with his presence. But the point of our text, the point of the author is, these people had the promise of rest. No more slavery. God's promise was a land of rest for his people, a land of provision and blessing. But what happened? Like we've already talked about, just review. That first generation of people walked through the Red Sea, saw all the amazing works of God in plagues, and then finally in the destruction of their enemies. They turned their back on God. They had hardened hearts of unbelief. They failed. They didn't believe God's word, like we've already talked about. They didn't want to listen. And author of Hebrews is saying, that should be a horror. That should be terrifying. That should terrify you just like the idea of a Hitler-like figure coming to power again somewhere in the world. Just like repeating that mistake that, that we've all made that we feel so bad about in the past. Man, I don't want to do that. The thought of doing that again, that terrifies me. I don't want to do that. 
I don't want to do that again. That was horrible. And, and so look at verse 1 again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, we're going to explain what that means in a second, but here's the, the, the verb, let us fear. It's a, it's a command. Let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. What's he getting at? He's saying there's still a rest for us, Christians, and we should fear not having it. A whole generation of God's people in the Old Testament, they failed to get it. Why? Because of unbelief. And he's saying in verse 1, there's still a rest for us, and we should fear not having it. See it there? Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So this word rest, it's really, really important. What does he mean for Christians post cross and empty tomb of Jesus? Like, what does that mean? Now the author here, he doesn't tell us, this is what makes this, these couple chapters kind of hard to understand. He doesn't tell us he's doing this, but he's changing the definition of the word rest here in verse 1. He's going from Old Testament rest to New Testament rest. He doesn't really explain it. So I'm going to explain it, all right? When he's talking about rest now in verse 1, he's not talking about Old Testament geographic borders, an actual place where you travel to, right? That was the promised land, a concrete geographic place in the Middle East, okay? God's not going to reinstitute a new promised land. That's not what he's talking about here. A new place of rest for Christians after Jesus. He's switching the metaphor. The rest now for, for them, then, us now, is not to go to some location, like to go to the promised land, the nation of Israel. But now for new covenant believers, it's this. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Jesus is our rest. You see in the New Testament, there's a profound de-emphasis on location. In the Old Testament, it's all about location. Go to the nation of Israel and see what God does. In the New Testament is go to Jesus. And then his people that are filled by his spirit and see what he does. It's not about boundaries and geography anymore. And that's what he's saying here. But, but just think about what Jesus said. He stood up during his life. And he said this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Like he's the provision, right? In the past, for God's people, it was Go to this land, and I will provide for you milk and honey. And Jesus is saying, you don't go to that land anymore. You come to me. If you, if you have thirst, if you need provision, I am the provision. That's what he says. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37 and 38. So for now, for us now, the promised land, the land of rest is not a location. It's a person. It's come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. So in the same way as those Old Testament believers should have trembled at the thought of rejecting God after all they've been through, he's saying the same thing. 
we should tremble at the idea of rejecting Jesus. You feel that? We should fear that any one of us would reject God and his promises that are seen most vividly, not in the Red Sea, that's Old Testament, New Testament, New Covenant believers, cross, empty tomb. It it should terrify us to be like, yeah, cross, empty tomb, that's cool, whatever. I got better things to do. I'm out, no thanks. And, and look at verse 2. He's continuing to make this case. Look at how he, how he articulates this. For good news came to us, meaning this original audience, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For good news came to us just as to them. They had good news too. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and compassion, compassionate, willing to forgive generation after generation. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The word wasn't connected with belief, right? And as a result, he quotes it again, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So those people back then, they had the promises of God. We too have promises of God, right? They didn't continue in faith, and there were serious consequences. They shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter the promised land as as an act of judgment. And a whole generation of people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, never saw the promised land of God. But if you trust God and his promises today, Foundation, meaning his life lived, his cross, and his empty tomb. You can have rest for your souls right now and forever in the future. What did, what did Jesus say? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11? He says, come to me. He says, come to me, all who labor or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See that? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, there it is again, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not slavery. It's not slavery. So the point is clear. I hope you you feel this this morning. People in the past, they didn't experience the geographic, locational rest of God in the promised land. That's the Old Testament metaphor. It actually happened in history, but the author of Hebrews is using it like a metaphor. There's there's disastrous consequences if we don't trust God by faith. We just reject his word. And the same is true for us. It's not a physical land anymore. It's coming to Jesus. There's no rest for your soul apart from Jesus. If you want to know that you can have rest now and forever in eternity with Jesus, don't reject his word. Don't harden your heart. Have ears to hear. Listen well. Trust what he said. There are dire consequences if we don't, and we should fear those consequences. Verse 1. See it? Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach 
the rest that is Jesus. Fear, like, what's that word mean? It's like sobriety. It's like, it's like seriousness. It's like contemplating, contemplating, contemplating the danger. Fear, like wanting to run the other way from something scary, right? That's good for you. That's good for you. We're not slaves to fear. We've already talked about that in the book of Hebrews, have we not? God does not want us to be, he came to free us from the slavery of the fear of death. But there's also another kind of fear that's a really healthy fear. Like you tell your kids, don't go in the street. There should be a healthy fear of your, your four-year-old has from running around on the street, right? That's not bad. That's a really good thing. And your child doesn't go, how dare you put these restraints on me? I want to go, my soul longs for the streets. You're holding me down. No, they enjoy the blessing of your house and the toys that they have and the backyard, right? So fear in this sense is a good thing. It leads to health. It leads to blessing. So let's wrap this up. What, what does all of this mean for us? I hope you can hear the author pleading with them. There's heavy language here. Don't give up. Fear giving up. Tremble at that thought. You, you don't want to show that you are condemned in your sin. And, and he, it makes all this corporate language. Like you all have to do this together like we saw last week. We should help one another to remember who God is and who we are that we would speak this gospel of faith and repentance and trust and treasuring and all the glorious implications that that has for us, namely, rest for our souls. I mean, I've said it already, I'll say it again, this is why we have city groups. I mean, structuring your church with small groups in mind isn't the only way to do church, and we don't even think it's necessarily like the way that every church has to be, we think it works great for us, and that's why we do it. It is a way, not the way, but a way to do what the author of Hebrews is talking about, to be in relationship with one another, to take care of one another, to watch out for one another. Man, brother, I feel like there's a hardening of your heart that is terrifying to me for you. That's <clears throat> why we put in our covenant of fellowship that that we don't want you to neglect the Sunday morning gathering for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that our relationships are important. Just having other touch points to see other Christians, it's a really big deal. We're not trying to just make you more busy, you know? Like, y'all have busy lives, a lot of stuff to do, but we believe that the Sunday gathering, based on God's word, is really important. Like, this is life and death stuff. You, you feel how the author is, is presenting it that way? This is life and death stuff. I just want to review really quick all the things that the author has said that are in, kind of in the same vein. Can you, so you can just kind of feel where he's going and what the implications are for us. He said in, in chapter 1, verse 2, pay close attention to what you've heard. And in Hebrews 2, 3, don't neglect your great salvation. In Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus. 
And, and we remember that it's not just consider, that's kind of a soft verb. It's more like meditate daily, be obsessed with Jesus. Hebrews 3.8, don't harden your hearts. Hebrews 3.12, take care against an unbelieving heart. Take care of one another. Hebrews 3.14, exhort one another every day against the deceitfulness of sin. And then today, fear the unbelief that will keep you from your promised rest in Jesus. I think the, the problem that I sense in my own heart, and maybe you can relate to this, and I just wonder about this as a leader here, as a pastor. I know some of us don't probably feel the, the weight and the urgency that comes through these pages, if you're really paying attention. We don't feel the weight and the urgency like this original audience did. Well, why? Well, it's not hard to figure out. We're, you know, a lot of us have complaints about politicians. It's fine. None of us are under the thumb of a wicked Roman emperor, okay? So there is a big difference. Our politicians, yeah, whatever. They come and go every four years or, or eight, whatever. But it's very, very different than 2,000 years ago. And most likely Nero, the Roman emperor, was in power when this was written. And he was making sport of killing Christians from time to time. And their suffering is going to come to light in later chapters that we'll see. And most of us haven't experienced that kind of hardship. Hardship for being a Christian like, like these guys did. But a couple thoughts. So the first one is, it is still happening in our world today. So that should lead us to pray. Pray for that. Like uh, Scott and Ruby and Jackie and I are going to be in Morocco in nine days. And we'll have the opportunity to sit across the table from people that read this text a lot differently than probably we do. Because where they live, there's a lot more at stake for being a Christian. Like, if you become a Christian in a nation that's 99.9% Muslim, um, ton of prejudice, very likely that you would have a very hard time finding a job. A ton of family pressure. If you become a Christian, you get baptized, join the church that we've helped plant over there, your family may just kick you out. That happens a lot. It has happened to believers in the church that we've helped plant over there. That's weighty. Alienated from my biological family. Can't find a job. It could happen here too. And and I want you to be mentally prepared now. The author of Hebrews wants you to be mentally prepared now. God wants you to be mentally prepared now. So you won't be surprised. We should be thankful that we have more ease, but don't let that enable us to fall asleep and to get lazy. Because that's not normative for all of Christian history. It's just not. So we, we do need to be prepared. I'm not saying the sky's falling. It might not happen, but it very well might. I mean, it's already happening to a certain degree. For example, uh, it it does happen now from time to time. I don't have any friends like this, but I know it does happen, where if you don't hold the cultural line on on gender and sexuality, you could get fired from your job. If you choose not to 
to enter into the pronoun thing. You could maybe be rejected at work, maybe not fired, but just ostracized. You could get fired. It's not like something that you hear about, at least I don't hear about it every single day, but that could increase in our lifetime. It very, very well could increase. Where you've got to either play the, play the game as the, cultural, as the culture sets the rules, or you're out. And that's going to have a lot of uncomfortable consequences. And I think the author of Hebrews would say, Job security is not nearly as valuable as Jesus. Like, is Jesus better than your job? Author Hebrews says, yeah, he is. It's worth it. That's probably the most immediate example, but anything can happen in the future, of course. But our hope is not in controlling the future. Our hope is in our God who loves us, sent his son to save us, and to give us eternity with him. So I just want us to make up your mind now. I challenge us all. Attempt to make up your mind now that Jesus is worth it. We have heard the promises of God. We have seen the the cross and the empty tomb and the, the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on believers. So let's not turn our backs on that. Let's keep going. Let's believe by faith that Jesus is worth it. Let me close with a a quote from John Piper, and then we'll pray. Do you see the great lesson here? The Christian life is a a life of day by day, hour by hour, trust in the promises of God to help us and guide us and take care of us and forgive us and bring us into a future of holiness and joy that will satisfy our hearts infinitely more than if we forsake him and put our trust in ourselves or in the promises of this world. And that day-by-day, hour-by-hour trust in God's promises is not automatic. It is a result of daily diligence, and it's the result of proper fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you um, help us as we consider these weighty things this morning? Would you help us walk by the power of your Spirit and the power of your Word Um, to enter into um, the rest that you promised that is Jesus. May May it be today and every day after into eternity. Lord, we thank you for the cross where you died for our sins and the resurrection that assures us that it's all true and that you've conquered the penalty of of sin that is death and that we can have life now. Pray that we would come to you, that we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.